0: This is our last Tuesday morning men's Bible study for the semester. And uh, I apologize, this is a great um, experiment in human habit of doing something every Tuesday that is maybe contrary to your physical nature of waking up this early, then having a week off, and then seeing how many of you will show up the next week for only one time. Uh, it's just the way it worked out with Thanksgiving being late in the week. We um, are late in the month. It's one of the latest Thanksgivings we had in a, in a while. And so, because of that, it's just, man, it's, it is what it is. So, here we are. This is the last one. Um, and we're glad that you are here. There's a couple things being the last one that are a bit of housekeeping items, but that are really, really important. And so, the first one is this um, already we want to talk about next semester especially if you are new, we want to invite you back uh, in January. We'll be right back at it, I think, the second Tuesday in January. But we'll make sure and send you tons of information on our, our actual start date. But I think it's going to be the second or third Tuesday of January. And we'll go through uh, probably the first Tuesday of May. And uh, we'll take a break for spring break uh, for those of you who, who will be uh, traveling with your families. But other than that, we'll be right here. Uh, every Tuesday morning. And we'll be looking at um, the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. Specifically, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11. For those of you who um, attend PCPC, Park City Presbyterian Church, that's our church right here. uh, We are working our way through the book of Hebrews uh, each and every Sunday uh, morning from the pulpit. And so to go along with that, we're going to be looking at Hebrews 11. Particularly if you've ever studied Hebrews 11, you know that it's this great picture of what uh, faith looks like through these Old Testament stories. And so each week we're going to look at a different Old Testament story that's mentioned in the book of Hebrews, specifically Hebrews chapter 11. And so if you want to get ahead of us, if you want to study not just Hebrews 11 between now and then, but if you want to look at some of the, the people who, who are mentioned in Hebrews 11 uh, that's where we're going, is looking at each of those Old Testament stories together. In particular, we want going to look at doubt. We'll look at faith. And particularly, we'll look about the faithfulness of God. We talk about the, the hall of faith, and we talk about what it means to have faith. Really, what we see is not a story of the faith of these Old Testament people, but we see the story of God's faithfulness, that there is reason to have hope when we are hopeless. And so that's what we'll look at beginning in January. So towards that end at every one of your tables there is a sign-in sheet. Some of you have already done it. Now here's this is a great deal that Elaine has made for you. We are we are asking you to uh, register again online for the spring semester study. But one time only, here's the deal we're making. If you will just sign your name and your information to that piece of paper, Elaine will do it for you. Isn't that amazing? That's right. Thank you Elaine. So take advantage of the fact that you are here this morning. Don't leave without signing that piece of paper. That way you're done. You don't have to go online. You don't have to log in. You don't have to remember a password that you forgot. Uh, You can just sign that piece of paper and Elaine will take care of you, okay? The other thing I want to mention is uh, some of you guys, I think, break out after this into room 303. If that is you, we're so sorry, 303 is now off limits due to construction, and so if you will meet in 301 instead, don't know who that is, but don't try to get into 303. Uh, you will, I don't know what will happen to you. Now you want to try, I know. Um, but go to 301, all right? All right, so here's what we're doing, the last, uh, the last one. Um, we've been working our way through uh, this series on the supremacy of Christ. And what we want to do this morning, in many ways, is we're going to look back and we're going to look forward. Uh, we want to give you an opportunity, as men and as a table, to look back on all that we've studied, this vast, huge topic that we could continue to do every single week and not exhaust all of Christ's supremacy. If you've uh, figured it out yet, each week we've looked at a different topic. Well, he's supreme over everything. And so each week we could really talk about a different thing, but we've, we've just selected a few things for you. And we really, we want you to look back this morning Uh, to look back on all the different ways that we've looked at uh, Christ's supremacy and what stood out to you, what has been encouraging to you. But we also want to look forward. The Christian faith is not just looking back on the past and being nostalgic about what God has done in the past. The Christian faith is forward-looking. The Christian faith is not just believing what God has done. It's believing in what God is doing and what God will do. And so this morning, we're looking at how Christ is supreme, not only over what he has done and what he is doing, but Christ reigns supreme over the end, the end of all things. To be a Christian is not just to believe that Jesus Christ came, but it's to believe that he is one day coming again. That Jesus Christ will return and he will make all things new. And that fact gives us hope. So this morning, we're looking at the supremacy of Christ's worth, that He is worthy of our worship, He's worthy of our gratitude, He is worthy of our hope, because we know that He is going to return. And so, to set that up, uh, I want to tell you about my experience last night. Uh, um, we just flew in yesterday from Atlanta, Georgia, where my wife is from, for Thanksgiving. And so, uh, my kids are tired, you know, we've been on the plane. Uh, We flew in about, um, finally got home about maybe 7.30 uh, central time. We've been on Eastern time, so they're all kind of out of whack. And I gather my three daughters, they're seven, five, and two on the floor of uh, bedroom. And um, so, okay, gather around, we're going to have a Bible reading. So every night we do a story, a Bible story, Uh, we sing and we pray And um, because I'd been living in my in-law's house for a week, I hadn't gotten to really do this yet the way I wanted to. And so gathered them around. It's December 2nd, so let's do our second Advent reading. And each Advent, we go through a a bunch of readings, stories, uh, from one of their children's Bibles. And this reading plan begins in Genesis. And so as we sit down to read, uh, my second daughter, Margaret, she's five, She's so excited. And she says, Daddy, 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 will you turn to the one about baby Jesus being born? And I said, Margaret, we can't read that one yet. And all of a sudden, just tears <laughs> start welling up in her eyes. And I'm trying to, I'm like, Margaret? And she's like, No, Daddy, read, read the one. We're almost there. It's, it's Christmas time. We're so close. Read the one about baby Jesus being born. I'm like, no, but sweetie, it's Advent. It's not Christmas yet. It's Advent. And, and our Bible reading says we're supposed to be in Genesis. And she goes, Daddy, what does Genesis have to do about Jesus being born? And at this point, she's crying. And I have this crazy, weird parent moment where I'm refusing to read a Bible story to my daughter. <laughs> and I'm reading her something else instead. And it was this great picture of what the Christian life, I believe, is really like for us. It is really hard to wait. And if there's anything that the season of Advent teaches us, it teaches us what it means to wait. We are in the season of Advent, by the way. Some of you know that. Maybe others of you, that's news to you. Depending on if you grew up uh, celebrating uh, the seasons of the church calendar, Advent is particularly um, powerful. Advent is is a word. It just means coming or arrival. It's about anticipating the arrival of Jesus. Okay? And what you might not realize is there are actually two Advents being celebrated during the season of Advent. Now, of course, we think of the first, we're celebrating. Uh, we're anticipating the arrival of Jesus, being born of a virgin in a manger, coming in the most poorest of places, the most unlikely way that the King of Kings would be born. Right? We're we're anticipating his arrival at Christmas. That's typically what we think about at Advent. But really, Advent over the centuries has not just pointed to the first Advent. But Advent has also pointed to the second. There are two Advents, two periods of waiting. The first as we celebrate his arrival at Christmas, but the second, the anticipation, the waiting of Christ one day coming again. If you think about it, the entire Christian life is a season of Advent. We spend our every day waiting for Christ to return. And we experience how hard it is to wait, just like it is for my daughter, Margaret, how hard it is for us to wait when things seem most dire, when things seem most hopeless. Every time that you sin, every time that I sin, every time that you feel the sting of death, the loss of a family member, a friend, a loved one. Every time that you experience disease or decay or brokenness, every time that relationships are just going awry and there's nothing you can do about it, every time that you look out in this world and you wonder, God, why would you let that happen? Why, why would you let this devastation or destruction, Why? In that moment, you are experiencing how hard it is to wait. How hard it is to wait for Jesus to come back again and make everything new. To right all of the wrongs. To calm our every fear. To make the crooked ways straight again. To bring justice to the unjust things. To heal the broken hearted. The Bible tells us that one day Jesus Christ will return and there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning. The former things have passed away and he will make all things new. This great vision that John gives us in the book of Revelation is what we're going to look at this morning. In many ways, I would argue this is the perfect Advent passage. Like Margaret, my daughter, you might think, wait a minute, what does this have to do with Christmas? It has everything to do with Christmas, because it's about waiting. About waiting not for him to be born, but waiting for Christ to come again. And when we do, we will truly see that he is supreme over all things. And so I want to look at this just very briefly with you in a few ways, and then send you to your tables. And the first way I want to look at this is this. Think about the worth of Christ. Why is he worthy? He's worthy because of all the ways that we've looked at. It's supremacy of creation his supremacy over uh, politics, his supremacy over our work, right? His supremacy over salvation. He's worthy for all those things, but he's also worthy because one day he will come again and that gives us hope. And if there's anything his worthiness teaches us, it's that we are not worthy. We are not worthy. And so that's the first way I want to look at this. We are not worthy. I want you to look at verse 1 book of Revelation chapter 5, some of you were with us about three years ago. We studied this book as um, a group of men through a semester. And Revelation chapter 5, um, it's a vision from John. It's a vision that God gave him over the end. What is the end going to be like? Maybe you've wondered that before. And In this vision, chapter 5 verse 1, John says that, I saw in the right hand of him, that's Jesus, who is seated on the throne, a scroll written, and on the back sealed with seven seals. Okay? So I saw on the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written with, uh, within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, as we looked at in Revelation three, three years ago, if you're with us, there's so much imagery that it's kind of mind-boggling. It can be dizzying. So real quick, let me just demystify what is the scroll, why is it important, and why does it have seven seals? Our scroll is written on both sides, okay? And it's the fullness, represents the fullness of, of our destiny as human beings. This scroll with seven seals, seven being the, the number of completion. If you ever want to know what's the end going to be like, the end is in this scroll. Okay, that's the vision. Right? There's one seated on the throne, and in his hand is a scroll. It represents our destiny. What's the end going to be like? In that scroll is written everything I just described and more. That in the end, everything is going to be made new. That everything's going to, everything's going to be made right again, right? It's this promise written in a scroll, it's sealed with seven seals. Verse two, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming, proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy of to open the scroll and break its seals. In other words, who is worthy to bring the end of all things? Who who out there is worthy? Who is worthy to bring the end of all things? Who's worthy to make all things new again? Who is worthy to right wrongs? Who is worthy to bring justice? Who is worthy to heal our brokenness? Who is worthy to open the scroll? Verse three, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Can you imagine what it would be like if I told you that without a doubt, everything bad in your life would become undone? That everything that we experience every sin, every disease, every malady would be healed. And the only thing that needs to happen in order for that to happen is somebody needs to be worthy to open a scroll. That's it. And if there's anybody who's worthy to do that, then every bad thing will be undone. There's only one problem. (laughs) There's nobody who can do it. Can you imagine the angst That's why John is weeping. There is no one worthy as he looks out. No no person, no angel, no created being. There is no one who is worthy to bring the end of all things. This was true of John's vision. This is true of our everyday experience. Brothers, I ask you a question this morning. Why are you frustrated? Why are you frustrated? You're frustrated in life because you're not worthy to make all things new. You are completely powerless to make the bad things right again. You are completely inept to be able to just stop sinning over and over and over again. We think about your work and think about what you face as soon as this study is over on a Tuesday. There are probably things that right now, I just brought it up, and now you're distracted because <laughs> it fills you with consternation. Why? Because you're not worthy. I'm not worthy. There is no one, no one, none of us who are worthy to make things right again. None of us. And we feel this every single day, and it frustrates us. It is frustrating, it's painful. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We live in a fallen world. We experience this fallen world all around us. We experience this fallen world inside our own hearts. And none of us are worthy to make it right. Who is worthy to open the scroll? No one. No one is worthy. And so that fills us with weeping. It makes it hard to wait. It makes us wonder, God, where are you? Is there any hope? Three quick ways I want to show you why, even though we're not worthy, why Jesus is. Why Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. And why that gives us hope, that gives us gratitude, and that fills our hearts with worship. It's the first way. If we're not worthy, I want us to see that Jesus is worthy of our hope. Jesus is worthy of our hope. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. I love that. Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Uh, On Sunday morning here, I saw that we, uh, I wasn't here, but watched and and, um, looked at the bulletin that we sang O Come O Come Emmanuel, the church that we worshiped at, an Anglican church in Atlanta. We sang O Come O Come Emmanuel uh, as well. And if you don't worship here, maybe you sang that at your church. It's a great Advent hymn. O come! Think about the words. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Not just come for the first time, but come again. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And if you read each stanza of that hymn, it's a sweeping picture of Jesus, his character, and all the different prophecies that have come together and culminated in the birth of Jesus. And one of them, you see, talks about The root of David, the root of Jesse. It's a great prophecy of Jesus. We see that in Isaiah. We see that in the Old Testament. We also see it in the New. We see it here in Revelation that Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? He is the king of kings. Jacob talked about the 12 tribes a blessing from Judah in Genesis, I won't read it now, but all the way back in Genesis, you see this language being used, anticipating the coming of Jesus, his birth, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But in Isaiah, Isaiah talks about the root of David, the root of Jesse. come, O come, Emmanuel, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. Isaiah chapter 11 was where that comes from. I'll just read it real quickly. You can go there later. Isaiah 11 verse one. Isaiah prophesies that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor he, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This great prophecy, Isaiah, the root of Jesse is David and then David's greater son, Jesus Christ. That there will be a king who will come, who will bring justice to the unjust world that we live in. That prophecy became true on the night that Jesus was born. But what I want you to see this morning, brothers, is that it will be fully true when he returns. In this side of heaven and on the other side of Christ's birth, you and I live in an in-between state, a perpetual state of advent. As we're waiting for the King to come again, that gives us hope. That gives us hope. If you feel hopeless this morning for any reason, if there's anything that's causing you to question the supremacy of God, anything that's causing you to say, God, where are you? Why would you let this happen? How can I hold on to hope when things seem so hopeless? I want you to think back on all the things we've talked about this semester all the ways that Jesus reigns supreme, and I want you to know this, he's gonna do it again. The promise that Christ is going to return tells us that everything that's been prophesied, everything that we read in the scriptures, everything that we read is not just a thing that's happened in the past, but he's going to do it again. And as one of the Advent books I've been reading on the plane, read it yesterday. I love this thought. And he's already on his way. He's already on his way. He's going to come again. He's already on his way. One day he will return and make all things new. That gives us hope. Not only does his worth, his worthiness, his supremacy give us hope, it also gives us gratitude. I want you to look at verse 6. Not only do we have hope, we also have gratitude. Gratitude. Though we are unworthy to open the scroll to make things new, he is worthy, and that gives us gratitude. Verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God out into all the earth. Again, I know there's symbolism here that can kind of be dizzying, so let me um, explain just a little bit very briefly I want you to see that this lion, this king, this mighty one, this conqueror, is also a lamb. If there's anything that the manger teaches us, it's about the humility of Jesus. That this great promised king was born in a stable, in a manger, he was born into poverty. What does that tell us about the character of Jesus? It's that though he was rich, he became poor. Though he was the king of kings, he emptied himself and took on the poverty of our flesh. And he died in our place and rose again. With all his supremacy, all his authority, he laid it down on the cross for you and me. And that's the image that John gives us here in Revelation 5. This lamb standing as though it had been slain. On the Sundays that we have um, communion, we have communion every Sunday here at PCPC at 8 a.m. and then at 9, 30, and 11, about every couple months or so, we have communion together. And when we practice the sacrament of communion, we talk about Jesus Christ being our Passover lamb. Why do we say that? Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Why do we say that? Because Jesus Christ is the lamb who was slain in your place. He died on the cross in your place. You should have died for your sin. But Christ, sacrificial lamb, offered himself up. He shed his blood, not the blood of a lamb, his own blood for you and for me. And now John has this vision of Christ as a lamb standing He's risen. He is not dead. No, this Lamb who is slain is now standing. He is risen. He is conquered. And he has seven horns, meaning he's perfect in power. He has seven eyes, meaning he's perfect in knowledge, right? This slain Lamb reigns supreme in the end. Perfect in wisdom, perfect in knowledge, perfect in power. He is the conquering Lamb. Lion, king, lamb, a sacrifice for you. See, so think about Christ's supremacy. One of the things that's mind-boggling to me. Think about any king. Think about kings over the history of humanity. And they had some supremacy too. Now, albeit just a little bit of supremacy over their little king, kingdom, but they had some supremacy. I want you to ask yourself a question. What did they do with that supremacy? If you were king, what would you do with that kind of supremacy? Well, if anything, history teaches us is that kings have used supremacy for themselves. The wonder of the gospel, the wonder of our King Jesus Christ, is that he uses his supremacy for us. And there's no greater picture of that than the cross. This lion has become a lamb for you. How do we respond to a king? who laid down his life for his subjects so that we might become princes in his kingdom. We respond with gratitude. You now it seems like forever ago, but we just had Thanksgiving. It's last Thursday, believe it or not. A holiday where we're supposed to mark the things that we're thankful for. I, I, every Thanksgiving, I get convicted that really I should do this every day, but I don't. What does it look like for you to be a man who lives not just a life of hope, but a life of gratitude? To recognize that this king of kings, this one who reigns supreme over all things, laid his life down for you, that should daily fill our hearts with gratitude. And ultimately that gratitude should give into one thing. And that's where we're gonna end this morning as you go to your tables. To say that we are not worthy, To say that Christ is worthy, to look at his worthiness over how he has been supreme over all things in the past and look at his worthiness that he one day will return, that should fill us with worship. Christ is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. I want you to look at verse 11. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne And the living creatures and elders and the voice of many angels numbing myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands sang with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worship. As Revelation chapter five comes to a close, it gives the stunning picture of the worship of all people and all creation and all of heaven, all culminating at one moment falling down on their faces before Jesus Christ. He is the one who is supreme over all things. In the end we are given this vision of the supremacy of Christ unlike any other. That Christ is bringing all of his power, all of his authority, all of his might, all of his strength to bear on one thing. To make all things new again. To fully fulfill every promise of the Bible. That not only do we have hope in his death in the past, not only do we have hope in his resurrection that happened in the past, but our hope is that one day he will come again. Until that day comes, what do we do with our time? We worship. We worship. As you look back on all the different ways that Christ reigns supreme, all the different things we've studied, if that does not fill your heart with worship and praise, then I would challenge you, I would challenge you to go back and ponder the supremacy of Christ. Meditate on just how big Jesus really is. I told you at the very beginning of this study that this cannot be just an intellectual exercise. This cannot just be a bunch of theology in our heads, but our theology must give way to doxology. What does that mean? As we think about Jesus, it must give way that into our hearts. Doxology it must give way to worship. When we think about the supremacy of Christ, it should overwhelm our hearts. So we think about his bigness, his power, his might, his grace, it should fill our hearts with worship. To say that Christ is worthy to say that he's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. There in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What are they doing? They're singing. They're praising him. They're worshiping. I mentioned this, I think, uh, at least I know I have in this study, maybe even when we looked at the book of Revelation, I've talked about it several times from our pulpit, the idea of worship, the old English word of worship, comes from the word "worth, it comes from being worthy. Literally, it comes from this word "worth,ship." to the degree that Jesus is worthy to you. To the degree that he has worth, he has value. That is the degree that you will worship Him. Just how valuable is Jesus to you? My hope and prayer is that this semester of looking at His supremacy, has only increased his value. It's only increased his worth that you are beginning to see what John saw in this vision that there is only one who is worthy to open the scroll. Only one who is worthy to bring everything to pass. Only one who is worthy to make things new again. Only one who is worthy to die for you, to rise for you, and the one day to come again for you. The only one who's worthy to do that is Jesus Christ. is supreme over all things and he has given this supremacy for your good and for the glory of God. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Lord, we thank you for this semester. We thank you for this study looking at the supremacy of your son, Jesus. We thank you that he did not hoard this supremacy to himself, but as Philippians 2 teaches us, He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. We thank you this Advent season as we celebrate his servanthood and being born in a manger, the incarnation and what that means for us. But we also pray this Advent season as we celebrate his servanthood, we'd recognize that the servant, the king of kings who laid down his life, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain for us, that one day this lion and lamb our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, will return. So we pray that Advent would be a time for us as men to grow in the discipline of waiting. When we feel most hopeless, we pray that you would give us hope. When we feel that we would do things different, we pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude. And God, above all else, as we talk about these things at our tables, as we go to work uh, this afternoon, we come home to our families this evening, God, as we celebrate this time of Advent, would you increase our vision of your Son, Jesus Christ? and Would that fill our hearts with worship? Would you make us men of worship this Advent season, men of worship in all things that we do as we wait for his return? We ask this in his strong name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.